Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with Blair Chappell from Williams Corporation. Blair Chappell, mate, thank you so much for joining me. No problem. Thanks for having me. No worries. And look, you know, obviously we're going to get to Williams Corp and the stuff you're doing now, but um, it would be good to sort of understand your journey to to where you are now. And so, um, like, I believe you you grew up in Canterbury? Yeah, born and raised in Christchurch, so sort of lived by the university and been here my whole life. Yeah, and um, high school, did you go to university? Yeah, so I went to, um, finished high school, went to St Andrews College and then went to Ara Polytech, which was CPIT back then. It was sort of that dichotomy of not knowing exactly what I wanted to do Majority of people either dropped out and went into the trades that I was friends with, or 95% that finished high school generally went through to university. I ended up doing a degree in IT, specializing as a business analyst. However, sort of Williams Corp came along, sort of the earlier version of it before I'd finished my study. So I'm not sure if I've ever used my degree. Half the people I talk to say, What you learned your degrees probably helped you to date. And the half go, you shouldn't have even bothered in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? I, I always think that, um, you know, like, so I've got a degree. I'm a teacher by trade. I taught for three days after three years of studying. And it's like, you know, was it worth it for three days? Like, clearly not. But I think it's also like, it's the other stuff that you pick up, right? When you're studying and you commit to something and you, you know, you learn and you've got deadlines and timelines. And you're also, when you're at tertiary study, you're, responsible for managing your life a bit more than you are at high school, you know? Yeah, I think it's that whole thing of whether you do a qualification at university or polytech or finish a trade, I think it's just the showing you can do something and finish it, even if halfway through you don't like it or a third of the way through or whatever, you can at least start something and finish it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so you talked about sort of, you know, Williams Court came along relatively early So and you talked about the early stages of it. So so how did it sort of come about and, and, and what did it look like when it started? Yeah, so early stages, I'm trying to think how many years ago this was, but it wasn't too long after the Canterbury earthquakes. I was sort of in my last year of high school and I had a part-time job at McDonald's. So I was working at McDonald's and kind of just got, I wouldn't say sick of McDonald's, but I wanted to do something different for a part-time job, mainly for more hours, better hours as far as we like night shifts or 5 a.m. starts and things. And my father, the good man that he is, would refuse to let me quit McDonald's until I got another job, even though I should have, in hindsight, just done whatever I wanted to anyway, but I do respect his opinion. And I thought, how the hell am I going to need another job so I can resign from McDonald's? And Matthew and I knew each other from growing up, even though he grew up in Nelson, who'd come to Christchurch sort of once a month to spend time with his father. And I knew Matthew had just moved back to Christchurch because of the earthquakes. Matthew was a qualified builder. I thought, I'll call Matthew, see what he's up to, see if he just needs a hand doing general labouring. And sure enough, he's like, yep, no problem. Come see me. And Matthew at the time lived at the Eddington Accommodation Trailer Park. Went around there, had a chat to him, and then more or less ended up signing an employment agreement just to do general labouring on building sites where he was effectively the main builder building for other people. And then just did that job part-time through summer, things like that. And then it was right around the time that the health and safety laws changed for building sites where you needed to have temporary fencing on building sites. And Matthew had arranged to import a whole lot of temporary fencing and start going into that side of the business. So I essentially went off the building sites and ran the temporary fencing side. 
And probably, I don't quite know the exact time frame of that, but probably six months to a year in, Matthew got called up to go work for his father at Horncastle Homes because they effectively, like every other business where it was post-earthquake, labour shortages not too dissimilar to what we are now. And then Matthew sort of said, well, do you want to take over running the business and buy in half? And then effectively, that was sort of the start of Matthew and I going 50-50 in the business, which generally did the general construction plus temporary fencing. And that was sort of the foundation that then became Williams Corporation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you guys did a whole bunch of stuff. I listened to some of your old podcasts and it's like, weren't you doing like rubbish removal and like all sorts of other things you sort of tried? Yeah, it was was one of those examples where I think, I said we're probably like 17 to 19 at the time. And we probably made out of temporary fencing, call it say 150,000 a year, which wasn't huge amounts of money, but for two people under 20, we're like, this is fantastic. We're king dicks of business. The easiest way to make a million dollars a year is to just have eight businesses because we're like, we can't really figure out how to scale the temporary fencing business more. Let's just figure out eight more businesses because this seems pretty straightforward. And then essentially, like you said, we went into not everything, but we imported some composite decking. We tried to do like solar panel leasing, tried to do a rubbish company, tried to do like a web design company, got into similar construction for trucks and diggers. And then what the market did is the market went from being really busy to effectively having slightly too much labour and resource. And we went from having a whole lot of companies making a tiny bit of money each to essentially a whole lot of companies losing a bit of money each. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. And what was, um, so you pulled out a studying to do that? I finished my degree. Oh, you did? Um, yes, I did finish my degree, but then... I essentially was doing business full-time, degree full-time, yeah. um, but never really got a job, so to yeah. speak. And what were, like, were, your, were, your, um, were your parents sort of supportive of you doing what you were doing? Because like, it's quite a, you know, it's a, it's not a common path, right, in, in, in New Zealand to sort of be, you know, I would think that, if, you know, bringing 150 grand a year, you know, when you're sort of 19 years old importing fencing is, a, is, a, is an exciting thing. Were they supportive were they you know they were my parents have always been supportive it was what happened was sort of in the last year of my degree in my head I'm like I don't want to do the rest of my degree can't really see myself working for someone else wanted to drop out and my father sort of said the whole I always wanted each of my children to have a degree I don't want you to drop out what if this doesn't work you need something to fall back on and I did respect his opinion so I did finish my degree and their opinion was always supportive of what I was doing, but always sort of had that, I wouldn't say doubt, but the, if this doesn't work, you should really have something to fall back on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, that's pretty common, right? You know, like in, in sort of Kiwis, the, you know, my parents were the same. They were sort of, you know, didn't really, you should just have a degree, doesn't matter what it is. And I don't know if that's the right way to think about it now. You know, like, again, there's benefits to, you know, I'm glad I did what I did, but also didn't use it and, and sort of thinking like what else would I've done with that time and um, you know when you're young like you're still very much you know your parents you're very impressionable by what they think right you know and if they support what you're doing you're happy and if they don't then you know it can be a bit harder and if you're doing something they don't necessarily you know uh, fully endorse you on then it can be a bit difficult. And I suppose that generation and also probably my and your generation that was the whole work hard at school get good grades go to university get a good job, work you out the ladder, save money, buy a house. Yeah. And then if half people, it's sort of also a Kiwi dream, also buy a boat and a batch. The other half is try to get some rental properties. Yeah. But I think historically it was for a lot of people, obviously not 
saying everyone mm. that was sort of the path or yep. trade and yep. what your life should look like. Hundred percent, pay off your mortgage and yeah, yeah. get married, have children. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. No, you did right. And so, um, you know, and when was it that you sort of, you know, you, you that, I mean, it makes sense, right? You've got one business doing, you know, one fifty. Let's have eight of those, and we can increase our, our income. When was it that you sort of decided that you're going to double down on the on the, the property development side of it? Yeah. So as far as one of the businesses we did kind of in the peak of all this was we wanted to do our first spec home because it's kind of a natural progression from going building houses for other people and we're so involved in the industry you sort of got good relationships with some tradespeople you know or supplier contacts etc and it was very common back then after the earthquakes to build spec homes build it sell it make money etc etc the only issue is we didn't really have any money to do a spec home with so we went on to trade me and just went section lowest price and we found a $65,000 section in Aranui, which for those that don't know, that's sort of one of the lower social economic areas in Christchurch. And we went to a foundation contract we knew quite well and sort of said, hey, we've got this idea, got this section, we want to build sort of a three-bedroom spec home on it. We think we can get bank funding for the build, but we need to be able to buy the land. Will you loan us $65,000 so we can buy the land? And essentially he gave us a $65,000 loan and we had to give him, I think it was 8% interest on the loan, but he also got a 50% profit share. And then we went to the bank and said, hey, look, we own this section. Here are the plans. We want to build this house, sell it. Here's our feasibility, et cetera. And BNZ actually came through and funded us for our first build. I think Matthew and I made 11000 off that first build mm-hmm. between us, so about 5500 each. Yeah. Over how long? That was probably a good year, year and a half, yeah. that first project. Yeah. And then we did sort of another block of four after that under a similar sort of structure. And when the market tightened up, it was sort of the whole, what are we good at? What do we actually like doing? Where do we actually make money? And it was sort of the, all of these businesses we started thinking we liked them, thinking they made money, but deep down we know they're just not going to last. But property, we seem to know it, we do enjoy it, it does make money, even though it's not probably the correct amount of money we should be making for what we're doing. And also we liked the requirement of we don't then need site staff, which we knew inherently we weren't overly good at managing because it wasn't our passion. And I'm not sure exactly what the trade down time was, whether it was sort of six months or a year, but that was sort of the selling assets, trailers, fence panels, utes, all that sort of stuff, and going back to temporary fencing and trying to grow our spec home business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so... Like, you know, you fast forward a couple of years out, like how, how was the growth of that and when did you get rid of the, the fencing stuff? The fencing wasn't too long after, mainly because it was sort of just longer to sell down and get out of, um, which we realised then that depreciation is a very real thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was a bit of a pain. Um, the first year I think we built about four homes and then I think the year after was, say, six, then it was 12, then it was, I think, 30, then... 60, then 180, mm-hmm. then 335, then 500, then 500, then we're in this year. Yeah. So it really was just about doubling or tripling every year. Yeah. Through that growth curve. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I, mean, I you know, people listening to this, you know, Matthew, your partner, is, is one of the first episodes I did. Um, and when I spoke with him, I can't, I can't remember, I might have been like 2018, so almost like five years yeah, ago. Yeah. Well, now. a few years ago. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, you were doing about $26 million in annual revenue then. Yeah. Um, that was probably getting close to sort of the year of 30 I touched on. Yeah. Or the yeah. other abouts. Yeah. And so what do you, that was doing 30 a year. What are you doing now? So, Financially, just finished, we delivered over 500 homes, sort of keys wow. to customers. Yeah. So, 
And uh, the year prior was the same. Yeah. And you're happy to disclose the revenue that that like I should know the figures off the top of my head, but our average price would be say six to seven hundred thousand. Yeah. So you're sort of getting upwards of three hundred and fifty million. Yeah. And I think over our career now, we've turned over about eight hundred and fifty million plus GST. So we're nearly yeah. Yeah, at the yeah, billion of revenue. Yeah. Yeah. Um and so I mean that's you know, five years, that's like ten X, right? If it was sort of around thirty when you know, it's even more than that. Um, you know, around thirty when I spoke with Matthew five years ago and you're sort of like three fifty now. That's sort of like twelve or thirteen, which is great, right? Yeah, then we worked that actually Matt was around last night and found the old property investor magazine that we were on the cover on, yeah. which I think was dated twenty seventeen and it was yeah, thirty million of revenue. And then I think we worked out you had roughly gone ten times that in yeah, yeah. about five years, four and a half years. Yeah. What a great story. Does it do you ever pinch yourself? Does it seem real? Like not really. It just it feels exactly the same. It's sort of like with stress management and whatnot, I sort of say stress is just like a muscle where whatever we were stressing about five or ten years ago was probably at the time very stressful, very worrying or concerned you or whatever. You still get the same feelings now, even though the problem might be much larger as far as if you just wrote them both down on paper. Yeah. But yeah. it feels very similar. Yeah, I see. And also your skills of managing them improve as well. So like, yeah, it's, it's exactly like a muscle, right? It's just, you just get stronger and used to dealing with, with And you've got issues. more experience yeah. and like a bigger balance sheet helps as well. Like if mm. someone has a go at you and you're starting out or takes a small claims call or whatever, that time or that threat of five or $10,000 is like very worrying. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you build that mental toughness and resilience and have a bit of a balance sheet and have other experiences where I sort of sometimes go, at least this situation isn't as bad as that situation. Yeah. So it's not actually that bad. Yeah, 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 totally. And, um, you know, what, what do you think, is there anything that's moved the needle for you the most in that? I mean, it, it's from the outside, it looks like it's been really consistent, right? It looks like it's just been like, you know, you've pretty much doubled every year um, until most where we get to now. Like, is there anything that for you or the company that a decision you made, obviously doubling down on on the property development was, was one of the key decisions. Is there anything else that you can think of in that last sort of, you know, five or six years, decisions that you made or, you know, um, you know pivots or um, strategic strategic sort of things that it might not be, it might be something small, but that you did that's really allowed you to grow it all? Yeah, it's probably like three main things. One of the main ones was when we went away from sort of standalone houses or duplex and got to go more into that multi-unit space, even say I think our smaller block of multi-units might have been a block of five. Because what we realised as a business was we're building all these houses, not really making relative money to what we're doing. And it's because a lot of fixed cost of construction is so high, like if you had a $10,000 geotech to build one house on the site, that's a true cost against that one house. If you start doing a block of five, that geotech's still the same price. Mm-hmm. So sort of one, finding that good economies of scale as far as what we do as a business. Then the second thing was when we started to bring sales in-house and really focusing on sales being the tip of the spear. Especially in our industry, it's it's so much easier to build houses when you've already got them sold. And that also means you can do effectively more and more and recycle your capital. When we started relying on our own sales team that we were effectively in control of, could train them, et cetera, it gave us a far better idea of the market versus relying on external sales channels Mm -hmm. where they might have done two one month, then zero the next month, then say five the following month. And you have no idea if that's because of the market or if they're getting a higher commission from another developer or if it's they've got staff problems their end. Mm -hmm. So just being able to bring that in-house and being able to one, control the client experience, two, get the client data for repeat and referral sales, and then also three, being able to try 
have more of a streamlined sales pipeline of knowing what our numbers actually are mm-hmm. to then scale the business accordingly. And the third main thing was controlling our own capital through our wholesale capital fund, Williams Corporation Capital. That was a huge, huge change in the business that enabled us to grow just because of how much capital you need to be a developer. Having control of our own capital outside of banks and finance companies was really a pinnacle moment of being able to scale relative to the sales we were receiving. Yeah, yeah. And and those three key changes, you know, like like the, the in-house sales team, for example, like was that a, a light bulb moment? Was it something you'd heard of somewhere else that you sort of thought we should give this a go? Was there anything that sort of, you know, created that or was it just like let's give this a go? I, yeah, I think it's one of those things where in hindsight you can always put something down to a here is a key decision we made or here is a key strategic change. But in reality, it was probably lots of little navigational shifts and little changes that result in what appears to be a big change. Yeah. So I don't think any of those were huge light bulb moments. Mm-hmm. Like even with Williams Corporation Capital, we might have tried different variations of trying to get better access to capital that didn't work or didn't work properly. And then we ended up as that as a result. Mm-hmm. Much like the sales team, initially it was sort of one person for a long time before we started to bring in the second, the third, figure out how our marketing works better, understand Facebook advertising, understand actually having a proper CRM to record people's information. So it was lots of little things that yeah. then amounted to those sort of three things I talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And are those, um, you know, say like the, again, the, the in-house sales team, is that quite unique in the industry? It's definitely become a lot more common. Mm-hmm. So I think it's sort of, not to generalise the industry, but there's generally the smaller developers that will either not intend to be a large-scale repeat developer. So there might be someone that's just doing a one-off development where they inherited some land or wanted to try play developer. Or it might be someone that envisions themselves just sticking, say, 20 or 30 homes a year that doesn't want to have an office, a sales team, that branding persona. And then I think now for large-scale developers, they've seen the benefit of having an in-house sales team. I think it's become a lot more popular. Yeah. But no, I'm not saying potentially on the back of what we do, but I know a lot of people do look at what we're doing and how we're transacting, et cetera. And we have always talked a lot about the power of our in-house sales team and marketing. So I think it's become a lot more common to have yeah. control of your sales team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't have much insight into property development of Monus, but it seems I've sort of followed you guys. I don't know how I came across you originally, but followed the journey for a long time. And then obviously we work really close together. As yeah, proximity our, our old offices were like next door to each yeah, other. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, I sort of watched you guys. I mean, I remember when you, when you sort of moved into that building, you had like four or five staff or something. And like, Yeah, it was pretty empty when we moved in as far yeah. as we're like, yeah, room for growth, all sorted. And then... Couple years. Grew, yeah. yeah, what are your two staff numbers now? Nice. Oh, not huge. The sales team's about 30. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, professional staff, I'm going to guess and say about 20 to 25. Mm-hmm. And then we've got our Cebu support office, mm-hmm. which is a call center plus some um, accountants, quantity surveyors, marketing, et cetera. And they're probably about a team of 15 to 20. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And what have been some of the challenges with, with, with growing? A, to that scale and B, that fast because, you know, when it's you and Matthew and you're sort of, you know, working, I mean, I know you still work very closely, but it's a lot easier to be dynamic, right, when when you're small. You know, you're you're a bit more versatile, you're not, you're nimble. And as you grow, there there's, you know, more people involved, you've got offices, maybe different time, frame, time zones now. What have been some of the challenges as you've experienced that scale? I wouldn't say it's been any, like, one specific large challenge that you sort of have to struggle with and overcome. 
it's actually like I'm not going to say there's been no challenges, but it's that's a really good question. Actually, what are our main challenges? Probably to be fair, like you said, the hardest thing is when you go from a small business where you can do everything yourself, you've got key relationships with everyone you're dealing with, to then having to find the right people to employ, grow them as best you can, and then accept there's certain elements of the business that you're now entrusting to other people, which at times can let you down and not have results that you would like or that you would have done yourself. And I think it's probably like a lot of business owners can relate to, it's that businesses are generally only the people that work in them and your clients, and it's just finding that balance of employing the right people, retaining the right people, growing the right people, making sure there's clear expectations for everyone and that what you think is happening is happening and what they think they're doing is what you want. And probably just that people and staff management and then also as the business grows, accepting that instead of being able to go to site just about every single day, you now might only make it around sites once a week or slightly less frequently and you have to rely on your systems, processes, project management team looking at sort of the photos and logs they put up every day and then also it's that disconnect of making sure that the suppliers and contractors know that their relationship's still strong you still care about them and value them the exact same as when you went on site every day and would bring them pizzas and hang out with them and whatnot but just there's time constraints that limit you doing it to the degree you'd like or the degree you used to do Mm. and trying to run a large business and do the volume as best we can to a high quality but trying to also operate like a small business as far as relationships, availability, communication. And there was challenges in that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, all, it's the same for most people, I think, right? Like when you, you know, again, when you're small, you make a lot of the decisions yourself. You know, your, you know, your networks, your suppliers, your contacts, your customers. And then as you scale, it's sort of trying to find the right people to fit in. And then, um, yeah, the training, the support to make sure that they are on board with the with where the company's going and how you like to operate. And then and then almost getting out of their way a bit, right? Like that's kind of the challenge is Definitely. Going, yeah. And I think it's more like as a business owner, I like to think I'm available and contactable as far as we want to email me, call me, whatever. And that's talking about if there's a problem on site with either a builder or a contractor supplier, but then also accepting that in their mind I'm not contactable and they should, if there's a problem go elsewhere when I'd actually prefer them just to call me directly and deal Mm -hmm. with me. So it's just realizing that external opinions will change with the size of the business. Generally, regardless of what you do as a business owner, people will treat a big business like different to what they treated your business with when they were smaller. Yeah, yeah, you did, right. And what what does your like day-to-day look like now? Like, you know, you sort of talking, you used to be able to visit sites every day and now it's a lot less. Like, what what are you sort of, what's your role within it now? Day-to-day changes quite a lot. Uh, generally I run or oversee I should say the project management team and quantity surveying team so it's sort of balancing between delivery cost control tenders job costing sort of month end processes things like that I'm trying now with the market sort of being a bit quieter and everyone generally having a bit more time to sort of start making sure I'm spending adequate time meeting with suppliers with key contractors going to site more checking all the tenders are done correctly, checking job costs are done correctly, takeoffs, back costs, and sort of going back to more working in the business as opposed to on the business, just because when a business does get a bit smaller, you then do have less work to do on the business. You can sort of go back to refining what's already in place. Mm -hmm. And I'm quite enjoying that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And where did that mean, like... You talk about your training as a business analyst. You know, like where does all you know, like did you probably didn't when you're sitting at, at CPIT, you know, you 
do you think this is where you'd end up? And then how have you sort of developed that skill set? Because all the stuff you just listed is is pretty specific, right? And and it's not something you probably learnt uh, when you're studying. Yeah, I suppose I've always considered myself to be somewhat analytical as far as my personality type, and there is a degree of just learning through failure, which sounds cliche, but I'd more say learning through prior mistakes. Like when we started doing our first few jobs, you learn very quickly, oh, I forgot to include a letterbox on my job costs and that's now cost me $200 or I forgot XYZ allowance. So there's a degree of learning through that and also learning at a smaller scale. So when you do things at a bigger scale, you're less likely to cock it up when it really matters. So there is a large degree in learning through doing. And then also I think my personality type aligned well with that. But it is also very strange in the sense Matthew's the qualified builder and I'm the business analyst and my father is a real estate agent, so I've sort of grown up around sales. But Matthew runs the sales team and I run the project management team. So it's interesting how we're kind of doing the opposite job that we should do on paper. Yeah, yeah, but it works, right? Yeah, but it works and works really well. So. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you, you obviously don't probably won't know any different, but like it's to, to have, a, have a you know a partner that you've pretty much done everything with for your entire working life, you know, like looking from the outside, that's quite a unique thing but you know again you, you you probably don't know any different that's what all you've done your working life isn't it yeah i think we've actually done like we've done a podcast episode on this as well but it is to a degree a bit like a marriage and i think also it helps where as far as we've gone on this journey together versus someone sort of coming in halfway through or sort of once you've reached a certain size or success or however you want to call it and we've just always had a really strong relationship i think one because we've always had a very good alignment with goals and what we're trying to achieve We've always not really sweated the small stuff. We sort of say we don't ever argue on what I call an A problem. An A problem would be if I wanted to build hotels and Matt wanted to build architectural homes, for example, where that's a very hard problem to overcome as a business relationship. So we're fortunate as far as who we are, what we do, what our goals are. We never argue on fundamentals that could upset a business relationship because Mm -hmm. we are commonly aligned. And when it gets to smaller problems, whether it be should we do a seminar here or there? I think our carpet colours wrong, we should change it. We kind of have this stance of just whoever cares more wins. Where it's just, hey, look, if you seem to really care about the carpet, if you want that changed, then sure, you can change the carpet because it's not that important to me. Yeah. And we sort of say, as long as it's sort of the B and C problems, you're having disagreements over, not the A's. Yeah. Like we've never raised our voice at each other, never had close to a fallout or anything like that. And I suppose. It's kind of like a marriage, where I presume as long as your marriage is closely aligned for, and I'm not married by the way, but I am in a very happy relationship, mm-hmm. I feel like as long as your common goals are aligned, it doesn't really matter if there's a bit of bickering around the smaller stuff yeah. as to what's for dinner or who's doing the dishes, because at the end yeah. of the day, that doesn't really matter. Yeah, 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 totally. You're dead right. If, you, if you're arguing about that sort of stuff, you're fine. If you start arguing about wanting to see other people and have an open relationship, that's an A problem yeah. in a relationship. And then also in the sense of, we stick to our own departments as far as we all know what we need to do each day for our departments, but we're more than happy to help out the other person if and when required or put our input in. And then we both sort of say we're always happy to do 51%. Neither of us are of the personality type where it's I can pull back because this person's working harder. And I don't think that's something to do with a relationship or a business partnership. That's more comes down to the individual and what they want to get out of life and their personality of if someone is in a relationship in business that wants to ease off because the other person's there, I think that can be quite toxic because mm. then you get that sort of resentment and I'm doing more work than you X, Y, Z, whereas Matthew and I have never had to challenge each other's work ethic. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's, you know, and you're right, it's because you're aligned at a base level, right, a core level, you're both pretty aligned on, you know, where you want to get to, your ambition seems relatively similar, at least from the outside. Um, where, like, where, where do you want to take it? Like, what's the, do, do you have, a, maybe you maybe haven't thought it, but, you know. No, we kind of have, like, in a sense of, during the boom when we sort of, our sales increased to about 800 homes per year at its peak, we wanted to grow and grow and grow and grow. And now with the market change and just sort of, you look at, the whole 80 20 year on where do you spend 80% of your time? Where do you spend 20% of your time for sort of 80% of the results? We want to just do in New Zealand, say 500 homes a year, but with absolute perfection. So we're now focusing on instead of being the biggest, trying to be the best at what we do. And we think that cap would be about, say, 500 homes a year, which is about what we've done the last two financial years and what we're on track for this year. But try to do them just with operational excellence as far as the team, the quality, the product, the price point, the marketing, and chase excellence at that size before going, let's try grow. And I think a lot of businesses and industries are similar in the sense of if you do the right size with perfection, you generally will get a better outcome overall, whether that be quality of life, ease of business, GP, profitability, through doing potentially less work than if you try grow and push, you all of a sudden do so much more work with so much more stress with a lot more sort of admin issues getting in the way of life to get probably the same result as if you yeah. stayed at a peak operating efficiency. Yeah, 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 did right. Or even, you know, like, you, again, we talked about it slightly before off here, you know, you, you put an extra 30% effort for an extra 2 or 3% gain, right, yeah. net gain, yeah, and it sort of doesn't justify itself. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And so that's a bit of a pivot, you know. You know, going from the idea of like, you know, we want to be the, the the biggest or do the do the most in sort of quantum to then be the best. Was that? Yeah, a- it, it is. I suppose. Like to be fair, not that you can trust all data, but based on the building consent data, which essentially shows number of building consents issued for a role in twelve months, we are currently the largest privately owned builder based on consents. GJ Garden is still above us, but they're made up of multiple franchises. So there is a degree we're still as a industry, and I think we make up one point six of all building consents in New Zealand. So essentially, I think one is that one in don't know how many homes there would be for every hundred, but we are still in quite a large size. And where development is sort of an, an annoying business in a sense of it is hard to scale past a certain size because you need the key people, the key decision makers, people that have generally grown with the business it's not as easy just saying let's double in size again and just get 10 more QS, 10 more project managers, a few more accounts, et cetera, and be able to get that outcome. So there is also just a reality of what is the realism and ability to double in size again. And you can sort of tell there'd be better outcomes having a slightly different goal and different target. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, but it makes sense, right? You know, sort of, you know, and like, you know, I say scale back, but it's not like it's scaling back. It's still, a, you know, a significant achievement. You know, 500 houses a year, but trying to be the best at it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, maybe we can be both. Maybe yeah. we can be the biggest and the best, but it's more that internal mentality of how do we just make sure everything we do is with excellence versus how do we make sure we can try build and sell another 100 homes so it might be one of those things where externally the business might look very similar, but as well as internally, it's how do we do what we're doing better every day and making sure that if we're buying a block of land or doing whatever, we go, is this for the right reasons of being the best at what we can be? Not, is this so our numbers can go up? Yeah, 
Yeah, and that's important distinction, right? Because they can be confused and could be the same thing. One, and one, Correct. One, yeah, and so one a, a lot of it comes down to how do you actually identify what that is? Some mm. might say it's growth. Some might say that's actually following. You're only wanting to pursue excellence. That's why you did XYZ project. Yeah. So it's literally just more of a mental mindset than any sort of external change. Yeah. And how do you intend to quantify excellence? You know, like you, um, I, I'm, you know, it's a it's a great sort of aspiration to, to move, you know, not to move, but to, to sort of be focusing on quality. Do you have, like the, the pure quantity is easy to measure, right? It's like 500, 600, 700, like you can tell there's an increase. Is there, is there ways that you've tried to measure the... Yeah, well, like we still, like it's a lot of the whole being the best, it's not actually, as you know, uh, here is a leaderboard of the best or whatever. Like you when you take out quantity and size, best is up for discussion as to what that's quant like what's that defined is defined as. So for us it's more internally, what is our timeframes for consent? What's our timeframes to sell down a project? What's our construction timeframes? How accurate are our costings? How good does our marketing appear to be in the marketplace? Do we have repeat clients? What kind of occupancy do our rentals have? Are property managers giving us good feedback or are they saying something's not quite right? So it's it's more actually either internal metrics that are tangible, like construction timeframes, X, Y, Z, or it's also more just knowing that we've got repeat clients, people want our product. We go, hey, actually this development's sold out. You need to wait for the next one. Yeah. So yeah, so it's tangible. So it's more just you know yeah. if you're doing a good job or yeah. not. But they are still, you know, some of them are tangible, some of them aren't, but there's still a lot in there that are quantifiable, right? You know, and it's not about the number, it's about the, you know, the repeat customers or the, you know, the timeframes and stuff like that. Yeah, it's kind of saying more of a long-term approach to business, which I've always done as far as, I see you sort of spend the money up front and have less problems later on or try skimp and save and just know it's going to come back to bite you. Yeah. And whether that's through maintenance, whether that's through not getting a repeat sale, et cetera, bad referral. So we have always tried to do the former of spend the money up front and we do think we do build a very good house and it's I would say a good example is we put a heated bidet toilet seat in every house we build and it's like if we give you a heated toilet seat which no one ever asks for which costs us say an extra $500 to $1,000 a house think about what else we do that you can't see so we have always tried to focus on just building a good product and work up from that base fundamental yeah yeah, it makes sense, and, and you know your longevity kind of speaks to that, right? Like you know, if you, if you weren't with longevity, but the your consistency, right? You know, there wouldn't be selling five hundred houses a home, uh, five hundred houses a year, if there wasn't those sort of yeah, things happening. Yeah, right? it's like in years ago when we started getting attacked for doing homes without car parks in Christchurch City, and it's like, well, we believe it's realistic for people to lease a car park somewhere else because people have an affordability issue and rather have a cheaper product, and by removing car bucks where you can do that and is it more realistic for someone to walk a kilometre to work or 500 metres to work or is it realistic for them to drive to work and then pay $14 a day to park their car, X, Y, Z and everyone sort of not laughed at us there was a lot of discussions back then around what we were doing even though the likes of Wellington and Auckland have houses for our car parks for years obviously like Melbourne and Sydney mm. and things like that Christchurch is whether it's sort of that southern farming background or whether it's just because it was new sort of struggled with it, whereas now, say, five, ten years on, it's very well accepted, very common. National district plans are changing to not require a car park. There's always going to be people for or against them, but I've always said, look, we won't build what the market doesn't want. And what's interesting is our best-selling product is a one-bedroom home without a car park, but if we survey everyone or look at what people inquire on, 
there would not be the product they say they want to buy or the product they inquire on, but yet it's our best-selling product. And it's kind of that Henry Ford thing. If you ask people what they want, yeah. they'll say faster horses. And that was through us going through the base fundamentals of houses are too expensive, always have been, always will be, based on whenever you ask someone when you were buying houses, were they expensive? I thought, isn't it strange? The average household makeup's about 2.7 people per house, with the most common makeup being one couple. Plus, you always got the millennial generational shift of wanting better located, smaller dwellings, less of that sort of Kiwi dream of mowing lawns and having people around for dinner. Plus, then when you go, if the most common makeup of a household is one couple, why is the average house size 160, 170 square metres located half an hour away? And our assumption was we think people accept a smaller house if it's cheaper, well-built and well-located. And I think that's personally why I think that one-bedroom product's the best selling of ours, just because on a base fundamental level, it actually matches what the data says yeah. we should be building as an industry, yeah. even though as an industry, that's not what we're building. Yeah, and that's the, that's the advantage of a completely free market, right, is that the market literally decides, you know, like if you were building them and they weren't selling, then you'd stop building them. Yeah, that, that's the epitome of free market capitalism. Don't get me wrong, there's always going to be provisos to that where people sell a product as one thing and the end result something different or misrepresentation and things. But the benefit of the generation we're in is obviously everything's far more connected now, whether it's social media, whether it's the media outlets itself. People now have a voice that they otherwise might not have, say, 20, 30 years ago. So I think as an industry and as an economy, people are going to struggle with unethical business practices that in the past they might have got away with because everyone's so connected to say, hey, this happened to me from this company, here's this review X, Y, Z. Whereas in the past, it was far harder for someone in, say, the 70s that bought a product, had a bad experience, to actually share their experience about that company. So I think there is a degree of always getting that ethical conscious about what we do as well yeah yeah and again that's again that's almost part of a free market as well as it you know it's it's where our ability to connect and review and and share what's happened to us is far bigger but that's only the result of that i think is probably actually just better products right because because poor again with the free market if things aren't a good product they don't sell because you know people know they don't good and then they don't buy them and then so the company stop making them yeah. so they start making other things and they find good things and the good things that sell they make more of 100% then also you learn opinions like ourselves where everyone's got one <laughs> so it's really that fine line of people need to realize that just because a company makes a certain product or whatever doesn't mean they're trying to target you and say that product's specifically right for you because I'm yeah. sure it's like in your prior business with e-bikes people have very strong opinions on is e-biking real biking does it ruin mountain biking mm. what is it and it's like we don't really care it's like there's a whole lot of people that like this product mm-hmm. some people that might not ever accept it some people that might not ever accept it that come across yeah and vice versa and that's totally fine yeah 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 and that's probably been the evolution of most you know almost everything right and there's always there's always some uh, some people that don't like I mean it's because everyone's different like there's always going to be something some people don't like the color purple right doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the color purple it's just yeah, some people that's don't the like downside it. of not the downside of everyone having a voice but yeah there's always seen there a whole lot of people that don't like certain products and whatever and I think it's relevant for them to share their opinion yeah. when no one really asks them for their opinion yeah yeah and generally the minority's louder right it tends to be the way things are 100% but, yeah yeah, which is a bit of a shame. Um, 
you you talked about you know there's a boom right you know and we talked about a little off air as well is that you know after COVID and kind of like after the earthquake as well actually not just in property but in lots of things particularly in Christchurch right everyone thought you know Christchurch was doomed after the earthquake and it was probably the biggest you know single economic event in Christchurch ever you know in, in Canterbury that sort of three or four years afterwards and you know we've had COVID as well and um, you know industries that I was in exactly the same most industries in New Zealand our economy really was very buoyant for a while um, and there's been some change in the last you know even like six or seven months or so what's that look like for you guys you know you talked about you know you're having going from 800 homes to 500 and trying to really refine them um, has there been any other key changes to what you're doing or how you're doing things yeah it's like it's like any business I think it's you never get a year of perfect trading. You always might go, well, this got in the way this year and next year it'll be back to business as usual. I think you come to learn after several years there's always going to be something. And I think we're obviously COVID through a bit of a spanner in the works as you get lockdowns, which people weren't expecting and don't quite know how to deal with emotionally. And then you also get the concept that property prices are going to drop because immigration stopped X, Y, Z. Then the opposite happens and property goes up, say, 20 25% in 12 to 18 months which as an industry was hard enough to deal with with tradespeople, suppliers, contractors, then obviously shipping became a problem, price inflation, delays because of lockdowns. And then all of a sudden you start scaling up your business to match effectively what we thought was going to be long-term demand at those volumes or a slower plateau on the back end of it. And then after obviously the COVID boom, we've had say from about November 2021 till now, which is coming up say give or take 18 months, property prices coming back. Not so much Christchurch is only down about 2.5% year to date, last 12 months, sorry, whereas Auckland and Wellington were like 20%. Blank, no matter what business you were in, and if you use property prices just as a crude example, most businesses would struggle to deal with that excess demand over one year period and then have such a big pullback over one year period. So I think it's more accepting the fact that that was just the problems for the last two years of one, deal with excessive demand, then two, dealing with 18 months of declining property prices. There's not specific things we had to deal with within that, not too dissimilar to any other business, but it's just obviously labour was hard to get, then staff were hard to get, then staff retention, then cost increases, then being able to keep with demand where we physically just run into houses to sell. And the back end of it is now the market's quieter, do we have the right product for what the market wants now, which is generally... There are slightly more first home buyers in the market now, I believe, than what there were because investors are quieter and investors' main focus is interest rates are higher. How do I get a product that works in a high interest rate environment? So we've sort of just adapted our business model to better reflect what the market's currently wanting. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. And, and what you said there about you know going from this really buoyant market to a slower market now, the unusual thing about it is that they were adjacent, right? They were directly after each other, mm. which is unusual. And you think back, you know, like without sort of a you know, a black swan event like an earthquake. You know, that was what was bizarre about COVID and no one really thought, right, is that pretty much, you know, particularly in New Zealand, you know, sort maybe sort of microeconomy globally, but, you know, we had this very buoyant market and everyone was just like, you know, pretty much unless you're in tourism or maybe hospitality, right, things were going pretty pretty well everywhere. And then like within like three or four months, it just went like everything sort of just dropped off and it was a, that's bizarre. I mean, I'm not yeah, an economist. That was the speed in which it changed, but yeah. I think that's, not unique to property, that's probably unique to yeah. most and or businesses or even households. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I don't think it was, pro I think, I think. I mean, both our businesses were the same, you know, like and, um, you know, everything that I think it was a, a, a New Zealand, maybe even a, a global thing. 
of our cricket change. Yeah. Which is bizarre, right? And that's why, you know, there's a bit of carnage happening, right? And there probably will be in the next, you know, 12 months. Yeah, there definitely will be. And it's, as you know, just economic cycles, not that it's that simplistic, but I was reading something about the American commercial market is some horrific number, like $1.2 trillion of commercial debt that's coming up for refinancing. And they're in a similar position as far as a lot of that debts to smaller banks with less liquidity. A lot of tenants have left or folded for closed in the US because the economy is quite hard. Interest rates have gone up quite a lot as far as relative to what they were. And they think either a lot of this debt won't be able to be refinanced. And then, of course, you've got X trillion dollars of commercial properties that have now, one, devalued because of cap rates, two, devalued because now they're not getting an income, and three, it's where's the liquidity coming for someone to buy them. And I think New Zealand is inherently a lot more sheltered than that, generally because of our banking regulation. Mm -hmm. But like you said, as far as the carnage comment, there will be some and no one knows where it's going to show up. And it's the whole issue with interest rates and sort of the lever the Reserve Bank uses, because most New Zealanders have fixed rate mortgages, someone might not even notice. They might have fixed for 3% for five years, not really have any impact on their life or portfolio. Someone else might have fixed at the right time as far as a low rate, the worst possible time to refinance and go from 2.9% straight on to 7%. Mm-hmm. And that will materially change their household. But the person I was just referring to will have no change in their household. Yeah. So that's where I think it's going to be challenging. Where I think some people will be massively impacted by the economic change and others will be massively more sheltered. Like if you're in hospitality and sort of tourism, I feel like they probably forgot how good a normal functioning economy is with tourism. A lot of the ones that managed to survive COVID probably got really good at refining their business efficiencies, sort of dealing with that New Zealand market and very low tourism numbers, where if they were turning profits, keeping doors open then, I imagine now they can't even believe just how good it is yeah, yeah. and get on them. Yeah, and it's probably just in a normal market, right? And they're doing yeah. really well. Yeah. So it's I think there'll just be there will be carnage, it'll be very segmented for different people in different parts of society. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point actually. And it, it, it is it is sort of different for everyone, but I think um you know, I mean we just have to wait and see, right? Like I, I was listening to a podcast the other day about um you know, insolvency and, and businesses going to liquidation and like the numbers are up significantly. And and I think, you know, in a commercial sense, I think it's like we talked about off air, it's that, you know, we went from a very buoyant market to a slower market. And, you know, if you were relying on financing to do that, um, and generally, you know, a lot of people's bottlenecks were supply. And if you oversupplied and now you're caught in a, in a, in a slower market and you've got a financer that's you know, wanting to reduce their exposure or, you know, reclaim some of their, uh, you know, loans, then it can squeeze people in. Yeah. And there's a degree of, I know the IRD, the IRD is generally responsible for most sort of liquidations and appointments mm-hmm. of liquidators. During COVID, they were more or less told to go easy, work yeah. with people. So I think there's also a degree of the IRD and different departments going, we're back to a normal economy as far as relative to, COVID complications and lockdowns, we now need to start getting on top of some of these people with multiple arrears where we can't see the picture getting better. And I think it's probably a mixture of the two. Of One, the IRD actually been more enforcing bad debt to them mm-hmm. and where they might have been a bit lenient during COVID, plus obviously the economy affecting a lot of businesses. Yeah, 
and sort of both those kind of headway at once. Yeah, yeah, and it was almost a bit of a false economy through COVID, right? Because the government wasn't putting the IRD wasn't putting pressure on people; they were stimulating the market artificially with this cash that was going in. And so, people that were sort of teetering on the edge all of a sudden had this money and income, and yeah. you know, were taking on more liabilities and more expenses. I think with COVID, everything just it's kind of weird because everything sort of paused. Mm. All went crazy or not crazy as far as something's mm. ratcheted up, something's ratcheted down with like property went up, tourism went down. Now I've gone back to sort of more of a normal non-pandemic environment. Everything's kind of returning to a trend line of where it should be without COVID happening. So there's some things are ratcheting back up to normal like tourism and hospitality yeah. and other things have ratcheted down like property prices or yeah. cap rates and yeah. interest rates. So it's more what happened to your trend line during COVID and now it's roughly going Back to there or thereabouts. There. Yeah, yeah. And if you and if you if you looked at like say now versus you know 2019 and you took out that weird bit in the middle, it's just about where it should the, be. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's the, crazy. Line, the, the line's probably right, right. And the same thing with property prices. Probably the same. You know, like it's it's. The, I don't know too much about property, just, but I believe it's just slightly below the trend line now, but there or thereabouts at the trend line. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that always kind of happens. It's always cyclical, right? Yeah. There's ups and downs. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, what? Um, you know, one thing that sets, I think, you guys apart from what I see is the is your transparency. You know, like you you, you seem to sort of be really transparent on what you're doing, and and that's a, and personally and in business as well. Is that something that's intentional? Like you know, like you, you like the fact that you know property developers running a podcast, you know, like um, you know running all these seminars, being quite um, you know you're quite open in what you share, and and that's quite unusual, I think, at least from what I see. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a degree of one you can't sell a secret. So if people don't know either about you or your product, it's very hard for someone to buy from them. And we've always sort of said, obviously, if there's any ever a problem, whatever that may be, one of our sayings we always say is sunlight's the greatest disinfectant, which is the concept of there's an issue, put sunlight on it, kills the problem. And it's not about over-communicating or being overly transparent, but I think it's just being honest with either yourself or the people around you because it's a far easier way to go about your life and your business, not having to go, oh, have I told that person about that? Or like I always say it's very hard for an honest person to be a liar because otherwise like you need a good memory to be a liar. Mm, you do. If you've been in the truth or lying or whatever, you need to have a very good memory to be able to keep up with who you've told what to. My memory is good, but it's not that good. So it's far easier just to be honest and transparent. And also I think a lot of people appreciate transparency, whatever they want to deem that to be. And then you get good clients, you get repeat customers, you get people reaching out wanting to do business with you. You generally get a bigger business or better scale from that transparency. The alternative not being transparent is being sort of not secretive, but being a more traditional business. But everyone's attention span is so small now, you kind of need to stand out just to get any attention. I think if you just sit sort of as a normal business, you kind of just go wash with the rest of them. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. I like that. That it's, you know, again, it's very hard to be a good liar. It's um You just need a good memory. Yeah, 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 which which I don't have either, unfortunately. Um but yeah, it's, I, just, I mean, I, I don't know if that's intentional. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But it, it just seems like a, it's refreshing, I think. You know, and and again, you know, you, you, you talked about it before. You sort of get attacked for certain things. Is when you put yourself out there a bit more publicly, you get the the benefits of it, um, but you probably get the downside of it as well a little bit, right? Yeah, and it's one of those strange things. Like, no one ever says anything bad to your face. Like, you might get 
the odd bit of constructive criticism from probably someone you know reasonably well. But as far as what you might read about, whether it be online comments or whatever, no one ever says anything remotely close to that to your face. And generally, you get far more supportive people or supportive messages or business than the downside of negative comments. Yeah, yeah, it's worth it, yeah. Has it ever got to you at all? No, I think, um, like, when it first starts to happen, it's obviously a foreign concept. Not, I wouldn't say go, getting attacked, whether it's someone might personally attack you or it might be sort of more generic comments about what an article is about or whatever. For the first few times it happens, you're like, this is strange, this is annoying, I'm going to retaliate. But then when you learn that no one ever actually says that to your face or that you have customers saying, we like what you're doing, X, Y, Z, it's then you don't really think about it, to be honest, because those people, one, imagine what their life looks like if they take the time out of their day to personally attack someone, and two, you realise, replace that article with another article with another person or whatever, they will always just be that person that looks for comments to have an opinion on, on pretty much no matter what topic it is and no matter who it is about. Yeah, 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 no, I agree. And... um you know, it's 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 always going to happen, right? And and uh, you know, New Zealand is a is a tough place to be successful. I think. You know, do you think New Zealanders support other people becoming successful? It's hard to know because it's hard to get like a degree of relativity with another country. But New Zealanders definitely don't celebrate success. And then there's probably the flip side where some people celebrate success before they actually have any. But yes, there's definitely a form of tall poppy syndrome in New Zealand. And whether that's the media, whether that's older people, younger people, whatever, there is definitely a degree more of resentment in New Zealand to success. But then there is also a lot of people that like you sharing about your success. They then share their success with you. You then sort of meet like-minded people. There's lots of benefits to it. But it's very different than when I spent some time in America uh, for a few business conferences and whatnot. They love success. Like They openly try to say, what do you do? What's your business? That's awesome. What are you into? I'm into cars. Here's the car I have. And it's a very normal conversation and they very much encourage people to do well. Whereas in New Zealand, it's sort of more of that, like I said, it's the whole go to school and get a degree, save up, kind of like don't talk about money. Money's better to talk about X, Y, Z. For some reason, New Zealand's very much that way inclined and Mm. some people break the mold and do something differently. Much like in America, you've got the opposite. And also America is extremely sales focused, which is one thing I love and hate about America. Everything's for sale. Everything attacks you to sell you a product, whether that's the news, a conference you go to, whatever. But also the benefit of a New Zealand is New Zealand's not used to salespeople. Like when you go into a store in New Zealand and say, they go, can I help? And you go, I'm just looking. They just leave you alone. In America... They try to sell you everything in the bloody store and upsell you and upsell you and upsell you. And when you learn when you apply similar practices to New Zealand, because in New Zealand no one's used to that, you actually get quite a good result and people engage and transact with you. Whereas in America, a lot of people have their guard up because they're used to being pitched and sold to so often. And I'm adamant if you went into a store and said, just looking, if that person persisted for not even that long, they could sell me another suit, some socks, some underwear, a bag I don't even need, just because in New Zealand no one actually asks the question of trying to get the sale. And that probably comes out the back of the tall poppy syndrome, but I think there are pros to operating in a market where celebrate where success isn't celebrated as much as what it normally is. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. What a cool way to look at it. I had um, 
Marlon from 660 on a long time ago now, but he, he spoke about because I said, you know what, you know, like, because imagine like as you're a musician, right? You spend like a year crafting this bit of work and then you put it out and then all of a sudden people are like, it's shit. Yeah, yeah. You know, like imagine, <laughs> you know, like, and just, it's all public, right? It's all yeah. public. And like a so, song or a book or a movie. Anything, yeah. you know, like, and you just, you know, and and I said, what's that like? And he said, um, you know, we, you can't listen. And he said, you can't listen to the good or the bad. And which is quite, I'd never heard that before. He said, you know, like if everyone's telling you you're good, you can't listen. And if everyone's telling you bad, you can't listen either because it's that, um, it, it creates a false reality for you. And, and you sort of have to, if someone says they love the song, that's great. If someone says they hate the song, oh, that's fine. You know, it doesn't mean it's not a good song. Yeah, or it's, and not, it's a, not a survey. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not a survey, but, um, yeah, he just said you can't, you know, you, you don't read it. I don't listen. I don't listen. Yeah, I always say I've got to say, and I say to myself, I'm like, those that matter don't mind and those that mind don't matter. Yeah, yeah, it's dead right as well. That's, that's usually quite true. But like you said, that's a great way to look at you. can't listen to the good or the bad because you're never going to win. Yeah. That's just people like different things. Yeah, yeah, totally. But with the 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 way we're all connected so easily nowadays, it's far easier for people to be negative unfortunately because the interesting thing you, you talked about like people won't say it to your face right it's because like it's and, and like i'm not saying you but like if you some of the things that people say to people online if you said that in person you get a smack in the head right like you know yeah. like you know like whereas consequences for action <laughs> yeah, yeah. this foreign concept people have lost yeah yeah you did right is that the if there's a if, if there's a you make an action and it has a consequence it's fairly immediate or it was you know 30 years ago you know now whereas people can do things when there's an anonymity and they there is no consequence for it and so people have sort of yeah it's bizarre it's the, again there's a, there's a there's a positive side and a negative side yeah, to sky of people go i don't like bananas Half them to go. Why do you hate bananas? Yeah, yeah, just, totally. People just like doing that. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Um, I want to talk about sort of like staying healthy and stuff because that, I've, we've talked, you know, at least exchanged a few messages and stuff about this in the past. And um, you know, I know you're sort of into looking after yourself now. Is that something that's evolved? Yeah, were you always like that? Were you always sort of going um, to the gym and stuff? Or I used to gym a lot when I was younger and sort of at Polytech and whatnot. Just for whatever reason, it's, you know, mm. fill in time, you're young, you want to look good. As you know, in business, you get busier, make excuses, potentially drink more, eat out more. I think it's always, for me, I've always said, I want to finish each year at 90 kilos. So that way I sort of allow myself incremental creep through the year, if that's what you want to call it. But I say, come December 31st, every year I have to be 90 or less on the scales. Because otherwise you get... 90, then the next year, 93, then 96, and also you look in the mirror and you're fat and unhealthy. But also I don't think, I'm health conscious of like I have an aura ring for my sleep. I sort of try to stay at a reasonable weight. I go through small stints of going to the gym and not going for months on end. So I think a degree of, is how am I feeling if I'm feeling like something's wrong, whether it's mentally or physically, it comes down to am I sleeping enough? Am I going outside enough? Have I been exercising lately? Have I taken some time off work if I need a bit of a reset? Whereas if I'm feeling good, I'll then generally just not even give exercise or health much consideration. It's sort of just part of my daily routine. Mm -hmm. And then I think I did get, I got health insurance last year, so I had to go through a whole lot of like blood tests and echocardiograms and all of that sort of stuff. And I did enjoy that process. Well, actually, I hated that process because I hate 
don't hate doctors. I have a lot of respect and love for doctors. I hate people touching me, injections, not a fan whatsoever. So I hated that part of it, but I liked the concept of analyzing my body as far as what is my cholesterol, what is my blood pressure, what does my heart look like, because I had no idea about any of that. So I think now I've got a baseline. I like the concept of at least once or twice a year checking those numbers to make sure they're not getting worse. But as far as health and fitness, I think too many people go, oh, to be successful, you got to get up at 5 a.m., do some stretching, drink your water, then go to the gym, then do some meditation before bed. I have no routine in that sense. Like I might go to work at 6.30 in the morning, I might go closer to 9. I might finish work at 9 p.m. sometimes or I might go home early at 4. Like I said, I might go to the gym lots, I might completely avoid the gym. I might have McDonald's a few times a week and then eat healthy months later. I've never really had that structured sort of successful routine everyone talks about online. It's more just if I'm feeling good, I'll try to do more of the same. If I'm not feeling good, I'll try to tweak something until I feel good again. Yeah, interesting. That's I think it's the first, you're probably the first person that sort of had that, which is quite cool, right? It's, um, it works for you and that's great. Um, yeah, the, the I was messaging you about the O-ring, which you know, I've got one now, and um, I didn't think that measuring your sleep would create behavioural change. Like I didn't think it would actually make me do things differently. But um, it's significant. Like, it's mess- surprising. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is, it is. And I messaged you and I was like, how? You, you, I think you said like this has you know, made my sleep so much better. And I was like, how? And you're like, well, you just start to see things. And you know, when you see things, you realise the consequence versus actions. Yeah, it's and then- generally when you see the bad things, I think it's like if you do have a big night out and you see that sleep score and then relate that back to how you feel that day, it's slightly more tangible of, I know what the consequences on my sleep from a metrics perspective of having a late night or mm-hmm. whatever. And then also sometimes the data I do find useful as far as I've stopped drinking sort of at the start of this year, not sure how long for and just wanted to as far as bit of weight loss and you'll be a busy year. But it's amazing, like my resting heart rate went from say, I think my old one was say 56 beats per minute. We're not sleeping and it's down to say 48 now. And the only change out of my diet was alcohol. And it's interesting is when you learn that that substance has that effect on your body and just being able to see it and visualize it and same with I've got a blood pressure monitor to understand my blood pressure is, it just syncs to my phone. And same with I've got scales, Fitbit scales that link to my phone as well. I think when you sort of can map that data out and go, like what's helped me stop drinking, I don't find it reasonably easy is seeing my weight come down then seeing my blood pressure come down, then noticing physical change, then having people notice physical change about me, all of those helped a little bit for me to stay sober. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think if I didn't have scales to track stuff, so like tracking things, didn't really monitor blood pressure, now I'm learning how much more important it is, it's very easy to do a week off and go, oh, not seeing any difference, I'll go back to it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just more, the, the more data you have around something, the better you are to make informed decisions. And health, as you know, is something that is, so important in life, but so easily neglected, especially in a time of busyness. So you should really try to get as much data around your health as possible. Yeah. So even when you are busy, you go, okay. Yeah, you did right. And I, th- I think the the thing if you don't have data is that you start to normalize negative changes. So like as you get older, back starts to hurt, right? Yeah. Like you just you just be like, oh, this is normal now. Yeah, I'm you old. Know, I, I get it all back. I'm old. I shouldn't yeah. get it all back. Or like, you know, like I shouldn't sleep as good or my blood pressure should be or whatever it is. But but when you actually have 
quantitative data to say like, hey, look, you know, this is actually changing quite a lot and is different, then you go, hey, well, you know, maybe I, there is something changing here. I'm not just getting old. And I think a big thing is actually like people talk about health. A lot of it's more around what I was just talking about essentially like blood pressure, heart rate, your weight, BMI. I mainly, I wouldn't say mainly, but that's part of it. I think mental health sort of a more important thing for me of just how do I feel every day? Am I enjoying coming to work? Am I enjoying what my calendar looks like? Whether it be social calendar, travel calendar, work calendar. And I think then if your mental health's right, it then makes it easier to make better informed physical health choices. Yeah, I think a lot of people need to focus more around mental health as opposed to get up at 5am, go to the gym before work because that's what I've been told to do to be successful. Meanwhile, I'm now not sleeping enough. I'm a bit burnt out but at least I've got a six pack. And yeah. some people can do that every day and I commend them. I can do it for short stints and I have to go back to sleeping in. But yeah, I think mental health largely can drive physical health because sort of how you feel is then how you act, yeah. et cetera. That's a really good point, actually. I've never heard it put that way. I think, I mean, one thing that I realized probably in the last like three or four months probably is that your ability to do anything well, whether it's run a business, be a parent, you know, play a sport, it all actually comes down to the energy that you have you know like if you if you don't have much energy it's really hard to be a good parent it's really hard to be a good businessman really hard to be a good athlete right it doesn't matter what it is and you know that's one thing that i've really been trying to work on is is having really high energy because if you're high energy you know and you can control that and you can you can focus that on something that's really important regardless of what it is it's almost like a superpower right and it's really annoying in the sense of Sometimes when you really want energy, you have none, and then vice versa. And then I think it's, and it's that really annoying cliche of it's the whole when you don't want to go to the gym, that's when you should. But often I think it's like success breeds more success, momentum builds more momentum. I think it's also not simplifying your body down to, I don't have energy to do this. I think it's just going, I always focus on waking up every day knowing what I need to do that day. And then I think that gives me energy when I do what I need to do each day, as opposed to waiting until I have the right amount of energy to do the certain task. Don't yeah. get me wrong, there's still sometimes where an email sits unread for a few days or you put something cough, but as far as majority of the time, mm. you get, well, me personally, I get energy from completing tasks I know I need to complete, regardless of how I feel. I mean to me. And sometimes it actually is more satisfying when you feel like absolute shit, you really don't want to do something, but you do it that's actually sometimes more rewarding than when you do something and you are feeling really good going into doing something. Yeah, 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 makes perfect sense. Hey, um, what is your superpower in this? You know, like, I ask this, you know, very broadly. You know, you've grown, a, you've taken a very small business or you started a very small business, you've grown it, you know, hugely and you know, what is it that you think you're particularly good at and you've you've added to that equation? I think the main thing was it took a few years for us to one, find what we were good at as far as we tried the different businesses then had to go, right, what are we good at, what are we not good at, what do we like doing, what do we not like doing? Then we went through a period of doing spec homes and renovations and not making as much money as we should have and then going, how do we change this because we know we're in the right industry, we know we're reasonably good at what we do and that's when we sort of stepped into the multi-unit space, working up from those base principles and fundamentals we spoke of, creating a product that was lacking or non-existent in the marketplace. And then I think as far as not just me, but Matthew and I were very good at 
sticking to the knitting as opposed to trying to go from, okay, I've had success in multi-unit townhouses, now let's go build rest homes. Okay, now let's go to architectural homes. We were both, for some reason, I'm not going to put it down to one or both, I was very focused on doing more of the same, which is, so we also say quite a lot around the office. And I sort of put it down to, when you look at your iPhone, it looks very, very similar to the first iPhone. Whereas in construction and developers are inherently bad at it, they have success on a certain project and then the next project's completely different. Then the next one's completely different, completely different, then they fail. Whereas most of the best brands in the world have iterated the same thing, trying to make it 1% better or slightly better each and every time. And I think from us focusing on doing the same thing over and over again, whilst focusing on incremental gains, whilst focusing on putting sales at the tip of the spear, and then me sort of analytically going, let's make sure our numbers work on this particular suburb or this particular product as sort of a combination of all those factors. But I think definitely one, finding the right recipe, two, then scaling and iterating that recipe versus just starting a whole new one. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and, and you're right, when you look at the greatest brands, right? you look at Nike, they've been making the this, this shoe. Like, you know, yeah. Yes, they look a bit different, but they're relatively the same, right? And I think like Facebook was the same, tried to the metaverse, which even though I don't get it, I respect someone investing in for change. Mm-hmm. But the amount of money and losses from going, we're really good at this, or arguably really good at this, but they do do a good job. Let's try something entirely new that we think the market wants. Didn't work well for them. Yeah, yeah, but their 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 core product is is although it looks a bit different, is kind of the same thing, right? Yeah, well, I see the iPhone's the best example. I yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or think like Toyota Hilux. Yeah, yeah. Mini Cooper, like all yeah. these things. It's yeah. just Porsche 911. It's just yeah minor iterations of the same thing, because how can you make something better if every time you make it, it's completely different? Yeah. Yeah, and and you were quite humble in the way you sort of walked around that question about your superpower. Do you think that is your superpower, the ability to take things 1% better each time rather than... I suppose, one, I think it's if two people are the same, one's not needed as far as a good way to look at business relationships. So having someone that complements my weaknesses and vice versa whilst also having a bit of crossover and commonalities, that's a superpower, I think, in its own because then you've got two people effectively been able to cover most basises versus one person with shortcomings. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, and then also I think it's, when you show up every day and do what you think you need to do every day while focusing on a common goal, working on how to do things better, and then I think it's sort of our 12th year in business, you just kind of have to get results. Like I think if you did any industry for 12 years showing up every day, you're going to get good at it. So I think there's also a degree of just perseverance regardless of if you think you should or not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, yeah. So I wouldn't say it's a superpower. It's, if anything, it's stubbornness, but I think it's literally perseverance is a big one. Yeah. And then also finding that person to supplement your weaknesses and vice versa. Yeah. So you effectively – it's kind of like in Blackjack where a lot of people might say to Matthew and I – why do you have a business partner and you have to split profits, et cetera, et cetera. And for those that understand blackjack, we sort of say it's like getting two face cards against a dealer where you've got 20, you've got a high, high statistical chance of winning that hand. Even though you could split your 20 and potentially double down and get two more 20s, statistically it's a safer bet to stand and take the high odds of winning versus risking splitting 
and trying to get two more 20s. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, and, and I, I don't think, I think perseverance is a superpower still. I don't think that's anything to be to be laughed at. I think that, you know, particularly in this day and age, you know, it was very easy to be flippant, right, you know, in what you do and yeah. where, you, where you focus your energy. Have you followed any of Andy Frisella's podcasts? No, I haven't. Great. He owns a supplement business called um, um, called First Form over in America, and he used to have a podcast called the MFCEO, and then he's made another one now. And he explained it great on one of his episodes and it was very much about people being flippant and changing industries and how long it takes to be successful. And he just explained it really simply. He's like, there is a pyramid. It's got 10 levels. Everyone starts on level one. He's like, you have a few issues. You get through that. You go up to level two. And he said, that might not even be physically with your business, but mentally you've got a bit more mental knowledge. You've got a few more learnings. He said, as you move up the top, there's less and less people there and it gets less and less competitive. Whereas most people start at the bottom, have some success and might go level two or three, then have some issues and go, this isn't right for me, quit that venture, go into a whole new industry and venture, then start back at the bottom. And he said, as you go up the top, it actually gets easier, less competitive because there's less people actually operating up there. And I thought that was a really good way to mentally picture why perseverance is important and why it's sometimes better to stick it, what you potentially could have given up on because you need to realise that you're already far surpassed, most likely, where a lot of people are, and it's not worth going back to square one. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and I mean, like my grandfather had one job his entire life, you know. But then, like, you know, and it's it's a good, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Now, it's like I had more jobs before I was like 21 than he had, yeah, you know, most of his life. And it's it's great because you can do different things, and you, if you don't like something, you do something. But you know, you imagine. He would say if you worked from what twenty to sixty five, you know, forty five years, like you're going to get pretty damn good, right? Yeah, you doing, are. Unless there's no right or wrong. Yeah. It's also like the entrepreneurship versus entrepreneurship aspect. It's like I'm sure number twenty at Google still makes substantially more money yeah. than myself. Like yeah. it's nothing wrong with being entrepreneurial or entrepreneurial, but I think it's realizing no matter what you do, you have to one enjoy it. But I don't. I think the main thing people need to understand is you don't have to enjoy it all the time. People always go, oh, do what you love, blah, blah, blah. It helps to be passionate about what you do because it means you won't give up when you have challenges. But I think you need to accept you're never going to like everything all the time. And then it's also accepting that shit just takes a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In a world yeah. where the internet makes everything look like it takes 30 seconds with huge guaranteed returns and mm. whatever. Yes, there are some people that might get those results, but it's such a tiny, tiny minority it's just the concept of you just have to do one thing for a long time and show up every day and do it in an ethical manner whilst being reasonably experienced and also not making a mistake large enough to send you under on the way through. And then if all that lines up, then you get to be successful. Easy, <laughs> easy. Yeah. Easy, right? <laughs> and then there's the other argument of what is success? Of course, people go money, is it family, is it free time, whatever, which varies for every person as well. So what is it for you? I think it's waking up every day enjoying what I'm doing. I think there's a degree of the only time is the present as far as the past is worrying about saying it's already happened and the future is worrying about saying it hasn't actually happened yet. But obviously you know that what you're doing today will influence the future and generally the past will influence potentially decision-making that you'll make today. But yeah, I really do just think waking up every day enjoying what you're doing and then I think there is a degree of having money and financial security makes it substantially easier to enjoy what you're doing every day. And then I do like the concept of property 
and houses in the sense of one, you're providing someone something that people need as far as a roof over their head. And I like the concept of that will outlive me, where you go from I've knocked down this house, which is in horrific conditions, all mouldy, leaky, and then you redevelop it to new houses, which helps businesses in the area. You do some handovers, meet some really nice home, like first home buyers, and it's their first house. They love being able to live there. You might meet some of the investors a few years down the track. They go, that property made a huge difference to our financial position. So I think it's, I like the concept of enjoying what I'm doing every day whilst making a tangible difference and then hopefully bringing other people on the journey with me through the concept of a rising tide lifts all ships. Do you feel successful? I don't feel unsuccessful, but I do think I've got more to give and more to accomplish. But I think it's the concept of, I always say, um, always happy, never content. Yeah. Right? I think it's there's no point going, oh, I'm not as successful as I want to be, or I'm a failure because I made this mistake. I try to have the mindset of, I'm always happy with what I've done and where I am, but I'm not content with it. And it's, Ed Milet says it quite well, and a few others have copied it. It's the whole, the the biggest issue with life is if you were to die and meet the person you could have been, but then also having to be happy with who you are and what you're doing on that journey through, realising that you're always going to make mistakes. You don't know what would have happened if you did take another another road or had kids earlier or later, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, yeah, I, I just say always happy, never content, and then just being happy every day, being ethical, being honest, trying to bring people on the journey and have those good relationships in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Did you think it would get this far? You know, like when you're back when you're going to visit Matt at the trailer park and, you know, picking him up and doing odds jobs. Like, oh, well, actually, to be fair, no, in the sense of when we first started doing development, our goal was our goal was one house a week. We're like, if we could do one house a week, 52 a year, we'll be made for life, we'll be tycoons, that would be exceptional. So I don't think we really envisioned growing it to the size that it's become. So yeah, no is the answer as far as we thought that 50 a year was the end goal and the overall target. So yeah. Yeah, and and do you do you take time to sit, I mean, you just said always happy, never content. Do you ever take time to reflect on it? Do you sit down and go far out like... No, I, it's one of the things like you might, it's, there's always going to be a degree of materialistic, guilty pleasures. Like there is times when you get in your sports car, start it up and go, I enjoy having the sports car. I have a smile on my face. This is the result of hard work and making money. So there is that degree of, I wouldn't say like patting yourself on the back, but it's sort of enjoying the fruits of what you've done. But for the most part, it's just, it's like anyone else. It's just you go to work and go, okay, what emails do I have to make today? What phone calls do I have to do? What client meetings do I have? What meetings do I have? It's more around looking forward and showing up every day versus sort of self-reflection per se. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one thing we're not that good at is maybe it's Kiwis or human beings, but probably more Kiwi thing, I think, is that, you know, recognising that we've all done bloody well, you know, like most people have done bloody well, right? And you look yeah. at someone like you and where you've come from and what you've what you've been able to do. Um, it's a, 
you know, we're often, especially when you're ambitious, you're really focused on the future, right? You're really like, like, where can I go? What can I do? I'm not content where I am. I've yeah, got to, I've got to I have agree. that. And, and, and you get very sort of like, you know, I've got this, but I want something more and bigger or, you know, and it can be hard to sit back and, and recognize that the ultimate win is being really bloody, you know, happy with how you feel. Yeah. And it's that whole thing of sometimes what drives someone to be successful and achieve success is then the same thing that drives them crazy and unhappy because they always feel like there's that something more and it does take a long time to sort of try get that balance right mm. and I don't think anyone's quite nailed it because I especially haven't but it's you're right it's very very hard to balance but I think also most people in society are probably too hard on themselves as far as just overall yeah yeah, it's a weird one. I'd say, um, you know, success is as much internal as external, right? Like you can look really successful on the outside and actually be miserable or you could look really unsuccessful on the outside and actually be really happy. Yeah, and then it's the whole, what we talked about earlier, of success is different for every, yeah. like some people might just put it down to money, but then they get money and realise that their grandkids won't talk to them. So yeah. it's like, and people go through different stages of life where like different things are important to them. <laughs> So I don't think that has to be a fixed notion of what is success. I think it can be fluid. I think when you're older, for me, success would be just having good health, where even if you had much less financial stability, if you had your health first been, I would say like, no matter how much money in the world you have, if you had a really sore tooth, you'd pay a lot of money to get that tooth fixed. Mm -hmm. Like when you have a cold and you can't breathe through your nose, you honestly forget how great it was to be able to breathe properly. And the problem is, and like everyone's guilty of it, especially me, is you don't realize those things until you get to that point. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to figure out how do you appreciate those little things that you take for granted before you then lose them. Correct. The The fear of loss or the threat of loss is it normally takes that for us to recognize the value of something, right? And it's I think it's not it's an innate in human beings. It's not until you, you know, think that you might lose something or someone or um you know not have the ability to to do something that you then go i love sure well, then I, you really want to do it yeah it's like, yeah 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 years ago when the marmite factory broke down yeah everyone wants marmite all of a sudden they yeah. probably went years without having any and when yeah. they're told like hey you can't get marmite yeah so yeah yeah, it's strange. Yeah, this, the, the the sickness analogy is dead right because like yeah, you never appreciate what it's like to not have a sore back until you've got a sore back. And you're like, God, I would just kill it. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's bizarre. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it is very bizarre. Hey, look, um, just to finish up, a, a couple of couple of questions. What are you most excited about? That's a good question. So, might be might be business, might be personal, might be. Yeah, I'm looking forward to like obviously, like I said, the last eighteen months as far as property goes, with prices dropping. Perhaps the most they have since the Great Depression in a short time period. That has been a harder challenge in business than prior years. So from a business perspective, I am looking at it. I'm looking forward to going back to I wouldn't say business as usual, because business is never business as usual, but I like to think when the market starts to stabilize, which it seems to have done as far as property prices in New Zealand now slightly up in this month than what they were in January, and interest rates seem to sort of be heading the right way potentially. Just going back to a good, hopefully, sort of five to eight years of a more normal economic environment of just your five to eight percent capital growth, CPI back under control, and then, like I said, going to that challenge of trying to do the volume we're doing now with absolute perfection. Um, then, on a personal level, I've got um, Georgia and I, my girlfriend, we're off to the World Cup in October, so I've never been to Europe before, so we're good to go around the other side of the world, mm -hmm. and then. 
yeah, it's literally just building houses, making money, helping customers, doing a bit of travel and trying to, I wouldn't say balance life because nothing's ever a balance in my opinion, but it's making sure I'm not overfilling one aspect of my life while I'm neglecting another one. And I think I'm in a pretty good mindset at the moment of doing probably some of the best I've done at balancing those things versus having something go really well whilst neglecting my health or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. How old are you? Uh, 29, 30 this year. Yeah. Yeah. Where did this come from? Like, not I say this, but like in general, like you seem, you know, like we've, I've known you for a few years, but not known you like this. You know, you seem quite, um, I don't want to say wise, but you've got quite a unique sort of approach to things. Is that something came from your parents? Is it just, you know, you? I think it's, it's hard to know because I'm not going to relate to age, but I think it's just, as you know, life teaches you lessons. And I think business is a way in which you can accelerate lessons that otherwise you might have to learn through time or age or experience. And I think just through business, you do just learn a lot from dealing with customers, suppliers, contractors, banks, things going your way, not going your way, learning lessons out of that, having sort of financial success at a young age and then having that sports car you wanted or having that nice house and then going through that, what does that feel like? What does that feel like now? Okay, how do we process that? And realising that if I'm nearly 30 and have had like a boat and a car and all that sort of stuff, it's obvious that you can't just keep chasing financial success and materialistic items because you're just going to run out of runway of what's what's going to give make you happy. And then it's going, well, if it's not material success, what is it? And to me it is being successful as far as doing what I say I'm going to do and doing a good job at what I'm doing, whether that's business or personal or whatever, and then just focusing on that. So as far as how I came to my different thought processes or opinions, I think it's just from doing a lot over a short period of time or reasonable period of time, to be fair, and trying to always reflect on why something happened and learning lessons along the way versus having excuses about why something may have been unjust. It's a really good way to look at it. Man, what a good mindset. What are you most proud of when you look back, you know, like in – maybe something to do with work, maybe nothing to do with work. You know, like you've you've lived 29 years, you know, you've done certainly well in a commercial sense. Um, you seem, you know, wise, happy. You know, is there something that you look back on and that stands out to you that you're really proud of? I like to think the length of time we've been in business and also the degree of, there is a capitalist degree of the money we've made because it does help justify why you do what you do and money is important in life and it can then do more for more people. So I think I am proud of that. And I think also just how fun the journey's been and how far Matthew and I have come either personally or as a business duo or Williams Corporation as a business entity and not falling out with each other, not having money materially change us, or in my opinion. And then also always and out here going about making money and doing business the right way as far as we've always tried to do the long-term business view, spend money up front as opposed to short-term cash grabs which will then have long-term consequences. So I think just making, like we made a lot of wrong decisions through the years, but making some key fundamental right decisions all those years ago, not having any idea that materialised to what it is today. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And what's the end goal, you know, say with Williams Corp? Like, do you have a, a, do you want to IPO it? Do you want to exit it? It's hard to know because in the sense there's very few second generational property developers, if any, because of a lot of metanology need to be a good property developer along the way. But I would love to IPO it one day, ring the bell, sell down X percent, stay on management for X years Mm. as far as a retirement plan. But I don't think it's anytime soon. But I think an end goal is obviously happy family life, personal life, business, health, doing that sort of 500 homes minimum as best as we can. And then also spending a bit more time on sort of personal investments, business investments, and then sort of what that long-term exit strategy looks like. But that's obviously quite some time away to be looking at. Yeah, yeah. Because it is a really fun industry. Like for all its challenges, it's a very good industry as far as I'm not going to say it's not regulated because that makes it sound like we do things that we shouldn't. But like, think about development in the sense of no qualification to be a developer, no real books you can read that can define at a really niche point how to be a good one and wherever you're trying to operate. But for some reason, you're in charge of a lot of money, creation of a large asset, and that's why I think there's such a big difference between a good developer and a bad one but it's one of those weird things where it's a very important role in society in my point, even though I'm a bit biased, but there's zero qualification behind it or zero way to tangibly go online or go to a library and learn how to do it. Whereas most other facets of society, there are qualifications, there are things to teach you about, but for some reason, property development is kind of this big blank. Mm, Yeah, and that's what you said, there's so much... There's so much almost creativity in it, right? Like, because there isn't any sort of right way to do something. Yeah. And it's generally learning a little about a lot because there's a huge amount of professional people that go into a development as far as that are very good at their craft, whether it be surveying or engineering, et cetera. But it's as a developer knowing enough about each aspect mm-hmm. to then have the whole piece in your head. Yeah. 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 Makes perfect sense. Um, well, I end this, my podcast with this question for everyone, but is, is what do you wish everyone knew? You know, it might be might be micro, might be macro, but is there something that that you know that if, if you could speak into the ears of the world and you could tell people and if they all were then to believe it or know it fully, that would make things, you know, make the world or life better or business better or... It's hard to say because it's kind of like when you watch a video online and you hear some wealthy person explain that money is not everything, the first thing you think of is you're only saying that because you have lots of money. So I'm not going to say anything in relation to that, but I think saying that everyone, I'd love everyone to realise is, especially talking like the New Zealand demographic, is one, just how difficult and bad the world actually is and how statistically lucky and fortunate we are to live where we are and as a society do what we do and have what we have. And I think it's also appreciating that if you do apply yourself to something, you can achieve far more success than you thought. Even if that success is smaller than someone else's goals and vision, I think it's if people realised how bad the world is and how lucky they are to be here and live here, I think society would operate a lot better versus the notion of this person's only there because I don't have what they have and blaming other people for their situations. Because I'm sure you've done a lot of travel, I believe. When you go to some of these countries and see how they live and what they have, 
you can always not wait just to touch back down at Christchurch Airport. I'm not sure about you. And it's thinking like, man, if only everyone in New Zealand could experience this and understand how lucky we are, even at the lower rung of society here, and then giving people the right opportunities to succeed, society would function a lot better. I think Singapore's a good example of that where very small, very dense country, because of their laws or education or whatever it may be, they all have a sense of pride about their country, a sense of security in their country, and I believe a sense to contribute to society or at least not be a burden on society. And I feel like in New Zealand, there's a little bit of a, I want to call it a sense of entitlement for either themselves, and then there's a tall poppy syndrome as far as a despise against other people, and I feel like everyone needs to take a step back, view the world a bit more holistically as a big picture, and then use that as motivation for why you actually need to do more than what you're currently doing. Yeah, it's a bit of perspective, right? That's kind of what you're talking about, is, is having a bit of perspective on how good things are and the opportunity you actually have to then go and grab something. Yeah. Well, not even grab something, just, yeah, I think people just can get a lot more out of their life than what they think they can. Yeah. I'd agree. And what a great way to end it. Look, mate, I'm, um, you know, I, I know how busy you are and I'm exceedingly grateful for you taking the time today. No, to it's cut. good to do this. I enjoyed being able to turn my phone off for an hour or two. So get back to the office and get that sorted. But no, it was hopefully, hopefully someone out there enjoyed listening and got some value. But if not, I always find Matthew and I find we do our podcast, even just talking for half an hour, an hour, whatever it may be about a topic or stuff more in general you normally get more benefit out of it than potentially what the person listening to. So yeah. even on that note, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. The time. Yeah, me, me too. No, it's been a, been a pleasure. And look, I think if you are, uh, the way, you know, again, I've known you for a while, but now to understand a bit more how you think, it's um, it's no surprise you've had the success you have. And, and look, if anything, I'm just excited to, you know, watch you grow and, and see how the next 12, 24, 36 yeah, years unfold. <laughs> Blair, thank you so much. No problem. Thanks very much. And there we go, Blair Chapel. Man, what a cool guy he is. You know, that was a lot different to, to what I thought it was going to be, to be honest. He's, um, I didn't realise how analytical he is. But, you know, obviously that's his background. And, you know, listening to the way he thinks, the way he thinks about business, the way he thinks about success, health and fitness, it's really different. And and that's the joy of having a podcast, right, is, is trying to understand people from different backgrounds that have done, all had sort of some varying level of success in their life and try to deconstruct and understand how they think and what they've done to get where they are. And um, you listen to Blair, it's no surprise that he's got to where he is. And, um, you know, I look forward to continuing to watch him and his business grow. So a huge thanks to Blair. And of course, a huge thanks to you. If you are still listening, thank you so much for checking out the Road to Success podcast. It means the world to me. And all I ask in return is one simple thing. If you are listening to this on Spotify, if you can please leave a five-star review. And there's a button there you'll see. It just says rate and review. Just hit that and then leave a five-star review. It would mean the world to me. I love getting to meet and chat with people like Blair and uh, leaving five-star reviews. It means the podcast gets to grow and ultimately I get to have more of these conversations. So again, thank you so much to Blair for doing this. Thank you so much to you for listening. And until next time, love ya, see ya, bye.